Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garfoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer. And today on the podcast, our guest is the co-creator of Black Lives Matter, Alicia Garza. We talk about where the movement goes from here, what Joe Biden should do if he wants to get young black folks to vote for him. And she talks about what white folks should do if they want to support the movement. And now, here's my conversation with Alicia Garza. Alicia Garza, from your home in Oakland to my home in Oakland, welcome to It's All Political. Thank you so much for having me. So it, it's amazing that it was it was seven years ago this month that uh, the Black Lives Matter movement formed. It was born. And it's, you know, we've seen it blossoming uh, amazingly over the last few months. Four years ago, uh, you could barely get Democrats to even say the words Black Lives Matter. Now it's literally written down the streets, uh, New York and Washington, Oakland. As you take stock of the moment, where do you, where would you like to see the movement go next? Well, what I'm excited about is that this movement has grown and gotten stronger over the last almost decade now. And you're right that four years ago, uh, we were in a position where Democrats were scared to say Black Lives Matter. In fact, you know, we had to (laughs) really push people not to just devolve into the all lives matter framework. Yes. And today you are also right that, you know, Black Lives Matter is painted down, you know, streets and cities across the country, including mine. And what I think is really important is that we continue to push this movement forward. Um, While Black Lives Matter has become certainly more mainstream and seems to enjoy more widespread approval than it did four years ago, uh, we are still struggling, right, to ensure that uh, the policies and practices that make it so that Black lives don't matter um, are are changed. And, you know, I can't help but know that, you know, we are in the midst of a, a, a presidential election. Uh, it's probably the most important election in a generation. And I think far beyond the branding, we really need people who are representing us, people who are responsible for uh, making sure that Black Lives Matter, like all lives should matter, um, are really pushing as hard as they can uh, to really make sure that we are eradicating uh, the impact of racism in our Mm -hmm. economy, in our democracy, and throughout the rest of our society. At the same time that we see Black Lives Matter ascending and the movement for Black Lives ascending, We also see an ascending movement that is white nationalist and white supremacist. And if you were judging by the hate mail and death threats that I get in my inbox, um, you would know that they are just as serious about winning as we are. And so what I want to see happen is stronger action on on the side of progressives, but also on the side of lawmakers across the aisle to really be clear that um, we are not going to go backwards as a country that actually this is our opportunity 
uh, given that we're in the midst of a global pandemic, a deepening economic recession, a crisis in our democracy, and certainly a crisis in our society, that this is not the moment to go backwards, <laughs> that this is the moment to push forward. And pushing forward means protecting the right for everybody to be able to cast a vote. Pushing forward means um, eradicating once and for all uh, any vestiges of white supremacy, whether that be in our government or our communities. Um, and it also means making sure that, you know, we're not just uh, being satisfied with symbolic displays when pattern and practice remains the same. Mm -hmm. That's where I'd like to see this move forward. Well, let, let's drill down on some of those things. And and one of the things you've been working on at the Black Futures Lab is something called Black to the Ballot, which is a policy agenda. And Joe Biden has uh, recently rolled out his own, what he calls, quote, agenda for the black community. It contains uh, promises that he would invest $15,000 in federal down payment assistance uh, for housing, uh, $70 billion for HBCUs. He'll triple Title I funding for schools with a lot of low-income students, you know, and, and on and on. Um, what, what do you think of what he has proposed um, for, his, for this, quote-unquote, agenda for the Black community? Well, I think two things. One, I think that um, what we see reflected in his proposal is many of the points that we put forward in our Black Agenda 2020. Mm -hmm. And so that is heartening to me that, you know, after months of lobbying, that we're starting to see that this campaign is listening and recognizing that Black communities are not only central to them winning a presidential election, but Black communities are also central to making sure that our democracy survives, making sure that our economy is strong, and making sure that our society um, is moving in the right direction. And so, you know, we did see a lot of things in that plan that we support and that we laid out as our plan for Black America, right? Um, you know, a $15 minimum wage, um, restoration of voting rights for people who are convicted of felonies, uh, you know, making sure that, uh, you know, the, the jobs that Black people are concentrated in are not uh, you know, a, a race to the bottom, but that there are jobs that can allow people to make ends meet and also to be able to look forward to their futures. Um, and we know, right, that this plan as it's written um, is certainly more than Donald Trump would ever do. Um, and so that, in that sense, is very important. On the other hand, we also think that it's very necessary to keep getting better. Um, you know, we're in this weird moment where I think because people, there are some people who are so fearful uh, that Trump will win the election <laughs> um, in, in, in 2020, uh, that, that, that that means that there's no room to actually push the Biden campaign to be better and to do better. And I would say uh, where we are now is that we need the person who is going to galvanize the most amount of people to turn up and turn out. And we can only do that, right, if we're being very clear about the problems that are facing not just Black Americans, but, uh, you know, uh, or Black people in America, I should say, uh, but, but, but challenges and problems that communities across the nation are facing, um, mm -hmm. Black and otherwise. And frankly, when it comes to Black communities in particular, we often talk about um, home ownership, right? 
or small businesses or entrepreneurs. And all of that is incredibly important to be able to give black communities a foundation from which to grow. But what we also know is that there are so many of us who are concentrated in the service sector, in the service economy. There are so many of us who don't have homes that we own. And in fact, we're struggling to keep a roof over our heads. Mm -hmm. And so we have to be able to balance both. Um, because what we know is that, you know, if, if, if winning the election is a simple math equation, then it means that we have to turn out more people on our side than they turn out on their side. And the way to do that is to appeal to people who may have thought up until now that it wasn't worth it for them to participate or that their voice didn't matter. And we can show, right, with a great candidate that their voice does matter because they'll see themselves reflected in the platforms that are being rolled out. What can Biden do to increase enthusiasm among black voters? You know, Cory Booker, we, we heard him say uh, last year at one of the debates, he was he called Biden the, quote, architect of mass incarceration for writing the crime bill back in 94. Older black voters generally like him, Biden, that is. Uh, but I've heard you say that the choice for many young black voters, you sort of alluded to it here, is is either voting or not voting. What can be done to to change that for Joe Biden? I mean, these black voters aren't aren't going to vote for Trump. It would be 90 percent for a Democrat if they're going to vote. But what about what can Biden do to appeal to younger black voters? Well, here's what we have to realize when it comes to black voters. You're absolutely right that, you know, for a, a many young black voters, the choice is not between Biden or Trump. It's whether to vote or not to vote. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge problem. The other challenge that we face uh, in terms of black voters is that you know, we're not a monolith in terms of how we approach politics. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, sure, we can expect that, um, you know, an overwhelming majority of black women will vote for the Democratic candidate and an overwhelming majority of black men will vote for the Democratic candidate. But what we are seeing and what we saw in 2016 was actually that there were more black men who voted for the Republican candidate, right, that had been true uh, in, in, in at least three cycles before that. We also saw a drop in participation from Black women. So 90% of Black women who voted in 2016 voted for the Democratic candidate, but 10% of Black women who were eligible to vote and had voted in the previous election cycle chose to sit this one out. Mm. And our hypothesis about this is that it has everything to do with Black engagement and it has everything to do with the ways in which we speak substantively to Black communities about our experiences in the economy, in our democracy, and in our society. I just mentioned in our last, in our last conversation that, you know, for so much of our communities, we are uh, approached electorally um, from a very narrow standpoint. Not everybody who is Black is a homeowner. Not everybody who is Black has access to an HBCU. Not everybody who is Black is a business owner. But yet so much of the conversation that surrounds Black voters um, surrounds a particular demographic of Black voters. That's not a bad thing, but again, to win an election, you have to turn out more people than the opposition. And that means we have to expand the number of people who are participating. And what we saw in 2016 was that there were a lot of people who decided not to participate. If we want to change that in this cycle, we have to, should have been, starting early in Black communities, but it's not too late to set up operations in Black communities 
uh, invest in local leaders, right? And make sure that the platforms that are being put forward are really reflecting those of us um, who feel disillusioned and disengaged from politics, those of us who are being pushed out of the economy, those of us who, you know, may have several family members who are incarcerated, um, and, you know, those family members don't have access to the kind of housing uh, that, that a, a different person could access because they don't have a felony record. Mm. These are the kinds of issues that will expand the electorate and ensure that more of us turn out and more of them. And that is the winning solution to winning any election. We'll have more of my conversation with Alicia Garza after this short break. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. And now, back to my conversation with the co-creator of Black Lives Matter, Alicia Garza. We, we are uh, hours away, perhaps, maybe days, from uh, Biden choosing his vice presidential uh, uh, nominee, his running mate. Um, how important is it that he chooses a woman of color in terms of, you know, enthusiasm and to getting, talking about some of these issues that uh, you just mentioned on the table and, and also would the enthusiasm, uh, level be as high if he chose Kamala Harris? Cause she, you know, she got some heat during the primary for her actions as a district attorney in San Francisco and attorney general of California. You know, there's different sets of wisdom on this. I was a part of a group of women who submitted an op-ed that, you know, that said that we wanted three core things from this campaign. Uh, one was a commitment to appointing a black woman onto the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. The second was ensuring that there was a black woman uh, who was selected as uh, the vice presidential nominee. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the third was a comprehensive, substantive black agenda. And I, I think that what is important about uh, there being a black woman in particular, not just a woman of color, mm -hmm. uh, is that, you know, black voters are who essentially uh, made Joe Biden the presumptive nominee. Oh, and they, they, they saved his ass. Let's be real. Facts on yeah. facts. And yeah, so yeah. at the end of the day, this is exactly what I mean about engagement of black voters. Black voters are asked to turn out time and time again, but then when we need to see our needs met, right, we're told to wait our turn or to mm. wait after some other scenario happens. Well, I think Black communities are tired of waiting. And frankly, uh, you know, some would say, well, the wisdom here is, you know, win, win the election and then make your demands. But from a negotiation standpoint, you and I both know right, that's, that, not that's not the way it, works. way it works. No way. Yeah, no way. You make you make your demands and that is what you give in exchange for your support. I think that black communities in this past primary really showed up and showed out um, to ensure that this particular candidate would become the presumptive nominee. And yet we need to actually see a reflection of that gratitude right? mm. <laughs> in relationship to uh, who uh, uh, Vice President Biden surrounds himself with. 
and that includes who will be on the ticket next to him leading up to November and beyond. And what, what about Kamala as if she picked, uh, if you if picked Kamala Harris, what, what her, her uh, history as a DA and, and AG um, affect uh, enthusiasm at all? You know, this is a moment where um, there is increased scrutiny on policing and, uh, and on, on militarization. And frankly, you know, we've all been watching over the last couple of months, right, as regular people are being faced with tanks and secret police and mm -hmm. tear gas and all kinds of things. So I, I do think that there's a, a, a real uh, danger in this period. Um, it, is, it is the reason, in fact, that uh, Senator Klobuchar, right, <laughs> um, is probably no longer being considered oh. <laughs> uh, yes. on that ticket because, of course, you know, who can get out of their minds, um, you know, this officer uh, kneeling on the neck of a man on camera for more than eight minutes, and who can ignore, right, that um, when given an opportunity to discipline this officer, hold that officer accountable, that actually uh, Senator Klobuchar uh, uh, chose to not do that. So now that's where we get to. I think the thing that is unique about Senator Harris is that um, she was not a prosecutor during the, the era of Black Lives Matter. And in fact, um, I'm, I'm maybe old enough to remember uh, when she was being viciously attacked uh, when she was the DA in San Francisco. Uh, you know, I mean, if you were to listen to the police unions, you would have thought she was Huey Newton. Um, and so <laughs> I just think that, um, you know, what is important is that Senator Harris has really demonstrated that she's a fighter. And mm. I think that voters across the country um, want to see a fight because we want to win, right? Mm. We don't want to do this like kumbaya type of thing. We're in a moment right now where we have to actually state what our values are and what they're not. And we're going to have to go toe to toe with the machine that is hell bent on not only uh, you know, disrupting <laughs> people's ability to participate in the elections, but certainly is hell bent on taking this country into a direction that we should never go in. So I will say in relationship to Senator Harris, um, she is one of uh, you know, quite a few very talented and qualified black women who I'm hoping is um, at the, at the, you know, on the short list of who is being considered right now. And I'm sure you saw that story this week that that said some of Biden's top donors were urging him not to pick Harris. It said this the story said that uh, others argue that she's too ambitious and she will be solely focused on becoming president herself. You know, you don't hear that often said of white guys who, who are running for office. What, how did that resonate with you? Well, it sounded it sounded like it came from a white guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, here's the deal. Um, what is real here is, you know, there are so many women um, who are being considered uh, that um, I think it provides fodder for the same sexist patterns to emerge. I also think that what we're dealing with here is. Um, uh, for lack of a better term, I mean, I think there's a fight in this campaign over uh, whether this, uh, the former vice president will be um, more of a coalition candidate, right? Mm -hmm. Trying to bring mm -hmm. together 
the left and progressives and you know whatever it is that we're calling the center at this point, <laughs> um, or whether he will have a clear point of view. And everything that we've seen thus far is that he's kind of trying to walk this middle line where he's trying to appease you know the 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 working class white voters who voted for Obama and then voted for Trump, right? <laughs> um, or, you know, the people who they consider not to be as far left as perhaps, uh, you know, um, any of the social movements that are active right now. Again, in a context where you have a president who reflects the most extreme, um, the most extreme faction of what used to be a coalition called the Republican Party. I do think that you have to have a point of view. And I think that the point of view cannot be from the 1950s, quite frankly. Um, any one of those women is entirely qualified to serve. And you know the notion that, um, that there's any other, uh, um, that there's any other notion otherwise, right, is um, the product of of ideas that I think belong in a museum and not in our uh, political discourse. Mm. One last thing I want to ask you, uh, and you got, uh, we have time for one more. And what can uh, white folks do who want to be good uh, allies uh, to the movement? Well, I think the question to ask here is, you know, what do you gain actually from making sure that Black Lives Matter? Um, I, I like to not use the word ally because I think mm -hmm. it's very passive. In the last mm. few years, I'd you know been using things like co-conspirators, right? Like people okay. who are actually going to I, work. I always, I'm always together. worried about. The, I'm always worried about the legal implications of that. Yeah, <laughs> makes me well, think of, me think of Nixon or something. Yeah, well, essentially, cons <laughs> I, I hear to conspire. You. To conspire <laughs> means to breathe together, and so there we go. Okay. Co-conspire, right? Uh, means that we're we're taking action together to actually add oxygen to the world that it is that we want to live in. Mm -hmm. Now I'm in a place where I'm feeling like um, so much of the, the displays of support and solidarity have been very important. And sometimes they come from a perspective, I think, of people feeling bad about racism rather than motivated to change it. Mm. Uh, people feeling bad about the fact that Black people are being murdered by police and vigilantes at alarming rates, but not motivated to change it. And so I think the real question is, <laughs> I think white folks in America have to ask themselves, why is it worth it for me <laughs> right? that Black lives actually matter in this country? And, um, you know, the reckoning I think that white folks need to have in this moment is that it's not just something to feel bad about, that actually we have had rules on the books and still do um, that have been rigged against black communities for generations. And there has not been the political will outside of right um, rebellions like this one to change them. I have a friend who uh, just recently got married and she bought a home with her husband in Sonoma County. And you know, she posted on Facebook the other day that you know she was signing a house, uh, or signing a uh, you know signing for a house where um, there were restrictive covenants in that neighborhood that blocked her from being able to live there. And some of these that's that that stuff is we we did a story about that that's still in the fine print in a lot of a lot of exactly. neighborhoods. Exactly. Yeah. So. 
I mean, I think we can't look at racism as a relic of the past. I think we have to face it very much in how it manifests today. And white communities have to be a central part of that strategy because unfortunately, the reason that these rules have been rigged for so long was to benefit and protect the power of white people. <laughs> um, when we look at the constitution, right? And why black people were named three-fifths of a human being, it was for the purposes of apportioning property and power. And some of those same rules endure today, whether it be, you know, the way that that black people comprise an, uh, an overwhelming number of people who are behind bars, uh, whether it be, you know, even the kinds of things where, you know, black people have been uh, incarcerated for, you know, marijuana at four times the rate as white folks, even though the usage is the same. But now that cannabis is becoming legal in places like California, you would think that black people would dominate an industry that we were once criminalized for. But in fact, what we're finding is that white communities are dominating that industry that was being used not more than three years ago, right, <laughs> to lock up uh, poor black folks across the nation. So the question always has to be not how can I be a better ally, not how can I be a better co-conspirator, but what can I gain, right, from making sure that black lives matter. And without a real reckoning from that perspective, um, I don't see how the actions that we take um, shift at all. Alicia, thank you so much. You can find out uh, about all the things that Alicia is working on right now at the Black Futures Lab and, and her own podcast called Lady Don't Take No, which is a, a great title. It's like way better than it's all political. Yes, I love my podcast. <laughs> I love it, love it. And you can catch a new episode out every Friday. And this week we have um, some special guests from the Movement for Black Lives. You don't want to miss it. Excellent. Alicia, thank you so much for being on It's All Political. Thank you. Appreciate you having me. I'd like to thank you all for listening and hope that you and your families are safe and healthy. I'd like to thank Alicia Garza for joining us here today. I'd like to thank the King, King Kaufman, for producing today's episode. And a, a shout out to our great theme music, Cattle Call, written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. And remember, no matter whether you're an ally or a co-conspirator, it's all political. <laughs>